Let us call upon the name of our covenant God together in congregational prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, we call upon thee in this evening, as thou hast drawn us in the cords of thy everlasting covenant love into thy house where thou dost dwell among thy people and where thou dost speak the words of everlasting life where our Lord Jesus Christ dwells by his word and spirit, and where thy people are saved and given blessing and rest. And truly, Father, we confess that thou hast drawn us by thy grace and by the cords of thy everlasting love. For what we find in the history of thy church is not the faithfulness of man, to thee, his covenant God. But what we find is the constant unfaithfulness of man, his constant departure, his constant apostasy, his constant hankering after and lusting after all the things of this earth and all of the exaltation of man and a constant rebellion and turning from thee. But thou art a faithful covenant God, whose mercy is from everlasting to everlasting, for thou art good, and thy mercy endureth forever. So that we say, who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all thy praise? And we pray that thou wilt remember us, O Lord, with the favor of that thou bearest unto thy people, O visit us with thy salvation, that we may see the good of thy chosen, that we may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that we may glory with thine inheritance. For we have sinned with our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt, they remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoke thee at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, thou hast saved them for thy name's sake, that thou might make thy mighty power to be known. Thou rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up, so thou lettest them through the depths as through the wilderness. And thou hast saved them from the hand of him that hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies, there was not one of them left. Then believed they thy words, they sang thy praise. They soon forgot thy works, they waited not for thy counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and tempted thee in the desert. And thou gavest them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. They envied Moses also in the camp, and Aaron the saint of the Lord. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot thee, their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. Therefore thou saidst that thou wouldest destroy them, had not Moses thy chosen stood before him thee in the breach to turn away thy wrath, lest thou shouldest destroy them. 
Yea, they despised the pleasant land, they believed not thy word, but murmured in their tents, and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. Therefore thou didst lift up thine hand against them, to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their seed also among the nations, and to scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also unto Baal Peor, and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked thee to anger with their inventions, and the plague break in upon them. Then stood up Phinehas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. They angered thee also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes, because they provoked thy spirit, so that Moses spake unadvisedly with his lips. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom thou hadst commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works, and they served their idols which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works, and went to whoring with their own inventions. Therefore was the wrath of thee, the living God, kindled against thy people, insomuch that thou abhorred thine own inheritance, and gave them into the hand of the heathen, and they that hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times didst thou deliver them, but they provoked thee with their counsel, and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, thou regarded their affliction when thou heardest their cry, and thou rememberedst them for thy covenant, and repented according to the multitude of thy mercies. Thou madest them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. And blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. We praise thy name in Jesus Christ in this evening. We pray, Father, that thou wilt speak to us thy word of peace, that we might hear the work, the perfect finished work of our Savior Jesus Christ, that we might behold him in all his glory and all his obedience and all his atonement, that we might hear thy law in the light of thy holy gospel, that our Savior has accomplished and finished the law for us, so that we need not obey unto our salvation. But having finished that law, our Lord has given unto us life and everlasting peace. And then give us zeal in obedience unto thee. And give us a life of gratitude and good works in making no graven images and serving them not and bowing ourselves not down to them. We confess, Father, that this is our sin and this is our iniquity, that we do not worship Thee rightly as we ought. Forgive our sins for Jesus' sake and count to us His perfect worship and righteousness as our own. We pray that Thou remember those among us also who are oppressed and who are hurt by those who are near unto them, we pray that thou wilt sustain them and give unto them the 
grace of thy gospel and the comfort of thy peace. We pray that thou remember all of us in our afflictions and our needs. We thank thee also, Father, that thou hast given us a Christian school for the rearing of our covenant seed. We thank thee for giving unto us children, for the fruit of the womb is thy reward. And we receive our children as a gift from thee. We pray, Father, that thou wilt remember us as we labor together in the rearing of this covenant seed thou hast given, that thou wilt give us grace not to look every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We beseech thee, Father, that thou wilt bless our teachers, our administrator, our board, all the staff, all the volunteers, all who give themselves in many different ways for the cause of covenant education. And we thank thee that thou dost build our house, for except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it, and except thou dost keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. And so build our house and keep our city, for they are indeed thine. We thank thee also that in these days we may gather for worship unimpeded by the laws of the land and the interference of the opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that thou wilt continue to give us this time in this land for as long as thou hast determined. Wilt thou so guide the rulers that they might countenance the preaching of the gospel everywhere. We pray that thou wilt remember thy people among the rulers whom thou hast called and chosen and who belong unto thee. We pray that thou wilt strengthen them and encourage them as they function as thy servants, as the powers that be who are ordained of thee. We pray, Father, that thou wilt continue to build thy church by the proclamation of the gospel. Wilt thou use us to that end also, that through the preaching of the word, thy saints may be built and thy church established. Wilt thou bless the witness of the printed page? Wilt thou remember all of the going forth of thy word and the technologies that thou hast given? We pray, Father, that thy name might be honored and thy church established through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that thou remember us this evening as thou hast gathered us for worship, that we might hear our Savior's voice. To that end be with thy servant, strengthen him to say, Thus saith the Lord, and to speak it boldly without fear or favor of man. We pray, Father, that thou wilt use thy word for our nourishment, for our peace, for our building up in the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and for our feeding on his blessed body and blood. Forgive the sins we have committed, blot them out in the blood of our Savior. Keep us from sin and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. We worship the Lord now in the giving of our offerings. The first offering this evening is for the building fund and the second is for the school fund.
Turning our Psalters now to number 38, Psalter number 38. The first stanza uses the word law, Jehovah's perfect law, and then it says that that law restores the soul again, and that is faithful to the language of the psalm. The law of the Lord converts the soul. The idea of the word law here is not the Ten Commandments as we're used to using that word law, but it's the word Torah or simply the word word. So that what we're singing here is that God's word restores the soul and gives wisdom. In other words, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ saves us. We sing this Psalter number with regard to stanza four, especially, his errors who can know, cleanse me from hidden stain, keep me from willful sins, the exaltation of the will of man over the will of God, which is the essence of image worship. So we'll sing the five stanzas with understanding, all five of 38.
We turn in God's word this evening, first of all, to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, we're going to read several incidents from the Old Testament in which the people of God or the enemies of God, in some cases, worshipped images, beginning with Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. Exodus 32, beginning at verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us, and now God, capital G, God, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy God, capital G again, God, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, For thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy God, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath, and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidst unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Next we turn to Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 7. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 7. Leviticus 10. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, 
and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it, that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uzziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said unto Aaron, and unto Eliezer, and unto Ithamar his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, and lest wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. And ye shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Next we turn to 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 23. 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 23. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, two hundred thousand footmen and ten thousand men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and is gone about, and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. 
Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey, and said, Go, and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Next we turn to 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 11. 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 11, and then the commentary on that passage in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13. 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13. But first of all, 2 Samuel 16, verses, or 6 rather, 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 11. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baalie of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, And he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And then a commentary on that passage in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13, when David is making plans to fetch the ark from the house of Obed-Edom and bring it up to Jerusalem the correct way. And David explains why 
God killed Uzzah, and it was not first of all because Uzzah had touched the ark, but because they had not worshipped God as he required. First Chronicles 15, verse 13. For because ye did it not at the first, that is, the priests carrying the ark on poles, for because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. And then finally, we have the New Testament's word on all of this in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world... Why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh." This is God's word, holy and inspired. May he bless it to our hearts this evening. On the basis of those passages and many others, we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 35. Lord's Day 35, explaining the second commandment. I'll read the second commandment out of Deuteronomy 5. Thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Question 96 of the Catechism. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Are images then not at all to be made? God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the second commandment is the great commandment on worship. In the second commandment, God teaches his people the worship of his name. That the second commandment is the great commandment on worship is evident from the language of the second commandment itself. The second commandment, when it forbids making graven images, speaks of bowing down to those images or serving 
those images. And bowing down and serving are acts of worship, so that the second commandment addresses itself to the church's worship of Jehovah God. If you are going to summarize the second commandment with a question, the question would be this, how shall we worship Jehovah? That the second commandment deals with worship is also the catechism's explanation of the second commandment. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we not worship him any other way than he has commanded in his word. Our images then not at all to be made. God forbids us to make or have any resemblance of them in order to worship them or to serve God by them. The second commandment is, by the language of the commandment itself and the catechism's explanation of it, the great commandment on worship. How shall we worship our covenant God? We are coming up to an anniversary of the explanation of this second commandment in First Reformed Protestant Church. On March 5, 2023, a sermon was preached on Lord's Day 35 in First RPC. Next week, then, will be the anniversary of that sermon on Lord's Day 35. The events that transpired after that sermon are bewildering. That Sunday we came to church like any other Sunday in order to hear the word of the Lord and within a very short amount of time many of us were out of the Reformed Protestant churches. That has been baffling for a year. Nevertheless, a year on, things are becoming clearer as to what happened when the second commandment was preached in First Reformed Protestant Church. And what's becoming clearer is this. There's a problem with us. There's a problem with us. There's a problem with us men. There's not a problem with the doctrine that God has given to remnant Reformed Church. There's not a problem with the doctrine that was preached a year ago in First Reformed Protestant Church. That's not the problem. The problem is you and the problem is me. The problem is us men. Because whenever the second commandment of God's law comes to man regarding worship, there is something in man that lashes out against it. And now I'm not saying there's a problem with those men who are in the Reformed Protestant churches, whatever one might say about a problem with those men, but the problem is with us. The problem is that we have a carnal nature and a flesh that hates this matter of worship and will not submit itself to the truth of God concerning worship. And that means that when the second commandment is preached to a congregation, that the congregation is in danger. There is a danger from men that always attends the second commandment. You see it as we read through the word of God again and again. There is a danger from men 
lashing out against the commandment of God regarding worship. And the danger is not even primarily this, that if you preach the second commandment, and if you confess the second commandment, and if you're an elder who stands with that exposition of the second commandment, that you're going to be killed, that you're going to be suspended from your office or deposed from your office, or that a member of the church might be put under discipline and excommunicated, there certainly was that danger. When men heard the second commandment, they were willing to murder, ecclesiastically murder, and they were willing to rob rather than submit to that commandment. There's a danger in the preaching of the second commandment that someone might die. But that's not the primary danger. There's a greater danger, and that greater danger is this, that in order to escape that death, you go along with image worship, and I go along with image worship. That in order to save your life, you are willing to exalt the will of man over the will of God in the matter of worship. A man might look around at Remnant Reformed Church and say to himself, but there's no life here, there's no future here, and that's true. No one can gainsay that. There's no life and there's no future here that the eye can see. Whatever the eye can see always beholds the church as dying every day and coming to a dead end at her Red Sea. Look with the eye of faith, and then you see there's a future, and there's a life, and the future of the gospel, and the life of having that gospel, and that's all the future and all the life that the child of God needs. But it's possible that a man hear this commandment and say, to save my life, I'm going to go along with image worship, whatever that image worship might, may be, here or there or anywhere. There's a danger that always faces this church until the day we go to heaven that we decide someday, you know what, let's save our life. Let's just save our life and not be strict on this matter of worship. And then there's an even greater danger yet. In fact, it is more dangerous for remnant Reformed Church to hear the second commandment today than it was for First Reformed Protestant Church to hear the second commandment a year ago. And the greater danger that you face today is that you hear the second commandment and say, Aha, there finally is a commandment that I can live under. There is a commandment that I finally have kept. When the whole world and all my friends and family forsook the second commandment, when everyone else was willing to exalt the will of man, I didn't. I sang psalms the way the Word of God requires. I changed my doxology and got rid of a hymn and sing a psalm, every service now in its place. Here, finally, is a commandment that I can live under, that I can go to heaven under. Finally, a commandment that I have done a good job in keeping. If that's the way that we hear the second commandment, then it's far worse for us. 
In fact, it would be better for us to throw out the psalms and never sing a psalm again and to introduce the shallowest ditties and hymns that you could think of than to think we're going to go to heaven underneath the second commandment, that we're under this law. Because if you're under this law, then that means your path to heaven, your way to heaven, is through your perfect obedience of the whole law, so that your heart must be absolutely perfect in every psalm that you ever sing, and your heart must be right with God in every sermon you ever hear. In all of your worship, you must be absolutely perfect, and if you're under that law, that law will kill you. For the Lord our God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate him, and only showing mercy unto the thousands of them that love him with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength, and keep his commandments perfectly. The way to hear this commandment tonight is not as the commandment that we have kept, and before which we stand righteous in ourselves. But the way to hear this commandment tonight is in light of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a man who was under the second commandment. There is a man who kept that commandment perfectly, who worshiped God with the zeal as he was bound to worship him who obeyed this commandment, never introducing something foreign to the will of God into the worship of his heart before Jehovah. And that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept the second commandment for you. He kept it in your place. He did it for you. And no matter what roar you hear out of this church and that church saying to you that's antinomianism, that Jesus Christ kept this law for you. He did it in your place so that it's finished for you. No matter what roar you hear, that remains the blessed news of the gospel. Jesus was eaten up by the zeal of God's house. Jesus desired one thing of the Lord and sought after it that he might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. The Lord Jesus Christ has finished that for you and now gives to you as the gift of his grace, the privilege of being assembled in his presence to worship him in gratitude according to the word of God. And so we hear this Lord's Day and the second commandment tonight under the theme, Second, No Images. In the first place, consider what image worship is. In the second place, consider the regulative principle of worship and in the third place, why image worship is forbidden. Second, no images. What image worship is, the regulative principle of worship, and why image worship is forbidden. First then, we look at this matter of what image worship is. And as the Catechism treats this matter of image worship, there are two things on the foreground the first is the form that image worship takes. And that comes right out of the language of the commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. And the form that the violation of this commandment took was the making of graven images. The Catechism explains that whole matter 
of the form of what image worship is. But then the second thing that the Catechism treats, by implication especially, is the essence of image worship. What is it that's at the heart of image worship? What is it that makes image worship so monstrous a sin and so contrary to the law of God? So those are the two things that we have to see in order to know in this first point what image worship is. Let's start with that matter of the form that image worship takes. First, the form of image worship is that one tries to represent God by images. And question 96 deals with that. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images. And then 97, are images then not at all to be made? God neither can nor may be represented by any means. This means there may be no drawing a picture of God. And because Jesus is God, there may be no drawing a picture of Jesus. There may be no artwork, though the history of artwork is filled with images of God and images of Jesus, there may be no representation of God by images. He cannot be represented by images, and he may not be represented by images. This would include children's Bible story books that might try to represent God as a bright light that either people bow before or run away from. Or this might happen in Bible story books with a picture of Jesus as he teaches or does miracles or hangs upon the cross. An image of God is making a representation of God or of Jesus because Jesus is God. The second thing that the Catechism has to say about the form that image worship takes is that we may represent creatures. Question 97, are images then not at all to be made? As to creatures, they may be represented. For all of the violation of the second commandment that's present in the history of art, one may be an artist as long as one does not represent God or Christ. One may represent the creatures, including angels, since angels are creatures and are not divine. They are not God. They are not Jesus. One may make a representation of creatures. Third, with regard to this matter of the form that image worship takes, one may not make a representation of creatures in order to serve God by them. That's answer 97. Though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. This was the sin of Israel at Mount Sinai with the golden calf. The word that Israel spoke, and then that Aaron spoke, and then that God spoke, is a little difficult to translate into English from the original Hebrew, because that word for God in the original Hebrew is a plural word. 
It's one of the unique things of that name of God in the Old Testament, so that right away in the first verse of the Bible, you're faced with a problem. In the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's not referring to multiple gods, which there are none. That's referring to Jehovah God, the one true God. And the grammar in that whole first verse doesn't match up, so that you're forced to face the question, what is going on here? And what's going on there is that Jehovah God is three persons, not three gods, but three persons who are the one true God, so that that plurality, that matter of God's three persons, is represented already in the name of God. But now when you come to other passages, you have to make a decision. What's being taught here? Is this teaching idol gods, or is this teaching the one true God? And throughout Exodus 19, or Exodus 32 rather, When Israel made the golden calf, that name of God is used to refer to the one true God. And the evidence of that is that when Aaron had made the golden calf and said to Israel, These be your God, O Israel, he immediately went on to say, Now tomorrow is a sacrifice to Jehovah. And there's no question about what that name means or refers to. Tomorrow is a feast to Jehovah. And there's Jehovah, you can see him. He's that golden calf. Everybody knows that that golden calf is not truly the God of heaven and earth, but we're just using that golden calf to represent God. And we're going to bow to that golden calf in order by that to serve and bow to Jehovah God. We're going to set up that golden calf before the altar and we're going to have a feast to Jehovah who's right there where you can see him, look at him, touch him, feel him. This was Israel's sin at Mount Sinai. They made an image of a calf by which they represented Jehovah. That is forbidden in the second commandment. And then the fourth thing that's forbidden with regard to this form of image worship is that we must not tolerate images in the churches as books to the laity so that people are taught to worship Jehovah by the images that would be presented. In the time of Rome, all of the relics and all of the images of the saints, in our own day, anything that would draw the worship of man so that man seeks to worship Jehovah through that thing that is set up. All of that is forbidden in the second commandment as to the form of this image worship. And that leads then to the question, but what is the essence of image worship? What is at the heart of image worship so that all image worship partakes of this thing? And that question is significant because when you come to Exodus 32, there it's obvious that they made an image. They made a golden calf and called it Jehovah. But what about those other instances? What about Saul? When Saul, after the victory over the Amalekites, did not kill Agag but spared him, 
and did not slaughter all of the sheep and oxen, but kept the best of them in order to sacrifice to Jehovah. What was the sin there? Saul, rather, King Saul didn't set up an image. He didn't make a golden calf. But he didn't worship rightly either. What's going on there? Or what about in Leviticus when Nadab and Abihu took to themselves their censers and filled it with fire and went and offered to the Lord strange fire? They never made an image. But something was wrong with their worship, so much so that fire blasted out of the altar and consumed them. Or what about when David moved the ark and put it on a new cart and Uzzah put out his hand and died? David didn't make any image whatsoever. But nevertheless, something was wrong with David's worship and the whole congregation's worship so that God made a breach upon Uzzah. What is the essence of image worship? What makes it so monstrous? And that's where Colossians 2 opens the key of understanding as to what image worship is in its essence. Image worship is the exaltation of man's will. Man worships God according to man's will. And Colossians 2 makes that connection because it says, why are you worshiping according to, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men? You are doing things that God never told you to do. You are listening to things that God never required. And now that submitting to doctrines and commandments of men in your worship is will worship. And what is that will worship but the taking of the will of man and displacing the will of God with it? God said, this is how you worship me. And man says, this is how I will worship thee. Not thy way, but my way. That's the essence of image worship. And you can see that right on through the examples in Scripture of this wrong worship. What did Israel do at Mount Sinai with the golden calf? They said, we don't know what happened to Moses. He's been gone 40 days and 40 nights. He's probably dead. Who knows where he went? He's probably never coming back. So Aaron, it's up to you now. Up. Make us God. We want to see this God. You say there's this God. There's his fire. We heard his voice. We want to see him and worship him with our eyes and our hands. Make us God. They exalted their will and said, Aaron, we will now begin to worship Jehovah the way we want. That's the same thing with Nadab and Abihu where they brought strange fire and the text comments on it which God had not commanded. 
It was not God's will that Nadab and Abihu bring that strange fire, but they did it anyway. They imposed their will over against the will of Jehovah. That's what you find with Saul, keeping all of the best animals of the Amalekites in order to sacrifice to Jehovah, which sacrifice is worship. God didn't tell them, keep those animals. God's word to them, my will is you destroy those animals. But Saul kept them, which disobedience was as bad as witchcraft. It was like making a false idol God and imposed his will on how he would worship God. So also David, bringing the Ark of the Covenant on that new cart, beautiful new cart, wonderful way for the Ark to travel, majestic way for the Ark to travel, but not the way God had required. David and all Israel exalted their will above the will of Jehovah, and the Bible calls all of that will worship. The essence of image worship, then, is that man says, I will worship God according to my will, and I will do that by displacing God's will and what he has said about worship. Do you see how monstrous the sin of image worship is? The monstrosity of image worship is not that golden calf. It doesn't mean anything. A man can make a golden calf. He may make a golden calf. A man could make a golden calf and set it in his living room. The monstrosity of idolatry is not that there is a golden calf. Gold is a gift of God. Artistic ability is a gift of God. The wickedness of that golden calf is that man said, My will is above God's will. And whoever's will is supreme is God. If the will of God is supreme in the worship of His name, then God is God. But man will not have it. Man constantly says, my will must be supreme in the matter of worshiping God because man is God. That's always the battle, whether you're talking about idolatry, last week, the first commandment, or image worship. Now it's the exaltation of man's will as God above God's will. That's also why image worship is so monstrous, even though it is always cloaked in piety. Man never, when he worships God according to his own will, uh, pretends to dance around a demon Man always cloaks his image worship in piety. Saul had a whole raft of excuses ready. First of all, it wasn't his fault. It was the people's fault. But especially, we kept the best to worship God. Who's going to speak against the worship of God? Look at those sheep. Have you ever seen sheep like that? Look at those oxen. You've never seen such good oxen. What sacrifices to bring to Jehovah? It's all cloaked in piety. And yet it's the exaltation of the will of man over the will of God. Or David, transporting the ark. Who's going to speak against such a regal carriage for the ark of the Lord? A new cart 
Nobody traveled around in carts. This was a majestic thing. This was fit for a king, fit for royalty. A new cart pulled by oxen, elevated so all the people could see it as it passed by. Who's going to say anything against a new cart? But it's elevating the will of man above the will of God. God stopped talking to Saul for his image worship and God made a breach upon Uzzah for Israel's image worship. Image worship is the monstrosity of exalting the will of man above God. And that's also why God hates image worship so thoroughly. God hates image worship. Because image worship says to God, You're not really God. Your will doesn't really matter. Man is God, and man's will matters. What did our Lord teach us to pray? In the first three petitions, God has a name. God has a kingdom, and God has a will that marks Him out as God. Hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. But man always comes along and says, Oh yeah? Well, I have a name, man. And I have a kingdom, Antichrist. And I have a will. And I will follow that will in my worship. This image worship is odious to God. He hates it. In fact, in this commandment, it's almost as if God pauses to tell us just how much he hates it. He gets through the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me in a few words. He comes to the second commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. And he goes on and says to the people who hear that law, The Lord thy God is a jealous God. If you think in the second commandment that it's less, the, the violation of this commandment is less odious to me than violation of the first, then listen to this. I'm a jealous God. And I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. I'll kill you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. God speaks very sharply about image worship. Why? Because it's man's will exalted above God's will. And that also explains why man is always lusting after and charging after images. Man is an incurable image worshiper. Man will not suffer his will to be infringed upon in the least Man's will must be higher than God. That's our old man of sin. That's our nature that we carry with us. Man must have his will exalted above Jehovah God's will. And you can see it. And now you and I can feel it in the temptation that threatens our own heart. How can you see it this way? That one day, literally one day, a man is very, very principled about how to worship God. The regulative principle of worship. A man is very principled about how he sings to God. 
Psalms and Psalms only. But the moment he's told, you haven't done it. The moment he's told, there's something wrong with your worship. That man literally the next day is willing to throw all his principles out the window to maintain his will. That's you and that's me. That's the nature that we have. And let us not think that we are exalted men who would never compromise our principles. If it came to it and left on our own, the moment that our will was threatened, we would throw out every principle we had and we would twist and turn ourselves into pretzels in order to maintain our will above the will of God. And that's the revelation of the word of God concerning us. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And that's our own experience about ourselves. I can imagine that. I can imagine it. Twisting everything to maintain my will at all costs. When the second commandment comes to Remnant Reformed Church and tells us what image worship is, that it's the exaltation of the will of man, it's saying to us, you're guilty. You're guilty of this. This is the nature that you have. You have not kept this commandment. Thanks be to God someone did, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as far as your life as members of the church, you've not kept this commandment perfectly in your heart at least, with those thoughts at least, that you could see throwing everything away to save your life and throwing everything away to maintain your will. That's what image worship is. Its essence, though it takes whatever form, its essence is will worship and the exaltation of the will of man. Over against the exaltation of the will of man is the exaltation of the will of God. The Catechism speaks of that exaltation of the will of God in answer 96 when it says, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. And then again in 98, we must not pretend to be wiser than God who will have his people taught not by dumb images but by the lively preaching of his word. The opposite of the exaltation of God's will, uh, of man's will rather, is the exaltation of God's will. And the name that has been come, has been given to that is the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship can be summarized in its essence simply as this. God's will over man's will in worship. Just as image worship could be summarized as man's will over God's will in worship. The regulative principle of worship is taught in the Reformed Confessions and the formula or the formation of that principle is this, that we in no wise worship God in any other way than he has commanded in his word. That's the formal statement, the doctrinal formulation 
of the regulative principle of worship, that we worship God in no other way than he has commanded in his word. The regulative principle of worship is not an invention of some cranky people. The regulative principle of worship is not the invention of some fevered people who got carried away with introducing things to the church that they shouldn't have. The regulative principle of worship is reformed doctrine. It is stated in so many words, if not the name, in question and answer 96. God requires in the second commandment that we in no wise worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. The regulative principle of worship deals with the public worship of the church. The church in her formal official assembly as the church. It is, after all, the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship is not the rule regarding a man's private worship of Jehovah in his home. There are things that a man may not do in his home that he's required to do in his public worship of the church, the Lord's Supper or baptism, for example. A man with his family at his table does not administer the Lord's Supper. But in the formal, official gathering and public worship of the church, there is the administration of the Lord's Supper. The regulative principle of worship deals with the public, official worship of the church. The catechism itself implies that when it uses that word, worship him, and this is the commandment dealing with worship, and when it speaks of tolerating images in the churches, question 98, as books to the laity. The whole matter of the regulative principle of worship deals with the public worship of the church. It is here that so much confusion is hauled through the door, or at least where men try to confuse the issue by hauling it through the door. When it comes specifically to the matter of psalm singing, which we'll deal with in an entire sermon next week, Lord willing, the argument might go this way, that if you say you may only sing psalms in church, then you may only sing psalms in your home and nothing else. That's a confusion and perhaps a deliberate confusion of the regulative principle of worship. It deals with the public worship of the church. Second, with regard to the regulative principle of worship, it deals with the elements of the worship service. What do we mean by the elements of the worship service? The elements of the worship service are those things that are the worship. It is those things that make up the worship of the church. The preaching of the gospel is the worship of the church. The regulative principle of worship has something to say about preaching. The singing of the psalms is the worship of the church. The regulative principle of worship has something to say about singing. The prayers of the congregation are the worship of the church. 
The regulative principle has something to say about prayers. The administration of sacraments are the worship of the church. And the giving of offerings are the worship of the church. The regulative principle of worship has to do with the elements of worship, which simply mean what the worship actually is. What are those things in the service that are the worship of Jehovah? The regulative principle of worship does not deal with circumstances. The circumstances in the worship are all of those things that somehow or another serve the church's worship, but that are not in themselves the church's worship. That would be, what kind of clothing does the minister wear? That is not an element of worship. Or things like, uh, what time the congregation assembles. That is not the actual worship. Those things may have some service of the worship, but they're not the worship themselves. The regulative principle of worship deals with the elements of worship. And here, too, all kinds of confusion is brought in, especially when the regulative principle is charged with being legalism. Because then the confusion will be made. Well, now you're going to have to regulate every single thing you do by the Word of God. What time you meet and all of the rest. So that nobody or everybody becomes scared of the regulative principle. The regulative principle deals with the elements of worship. It says, worship God in no other way than He has commanded. That speaks to elements. Third, with regard to the regulative principle, the regulative principle simply means that the worship of the church is regulated by the Word of God, ruled by the Word of God, so that what the church does as her worship is the will of God for the church, revealed in the Scriptures. And the church does not do anything other in her worship then God has revealed is His will for the church's worship. God knows what worship pleases Him. Man doesn't ever know it. All man ever knows is what worship pleases Him. What He finds attractive. What He likes. What His will is. Which is why man always turns to images as almost desperate for images. Because that pleases man. And why man says, my will above God's will, because that pleases man. That's all man knows, what pleases him. And so the regulative principle says, don't look to what pleases you. But worship God as he has commanded in his word. This, too, is made to be a matter of confusion. The argument goes something like this. You can settle every controversy out of the confessions. Every doctrinal controversy out of the confessions. All right. But then, this part of the confession is not allowed to settle the controversy over what you do or what you sing in the worship. The confession itself says, go to the Word. 
as he has commanded in his word. Worship him in no other way than he has commanded in his word. The regulative principle says, let your worship be regulated, ruled by the word of God. And then confusion is brought in to this matter of the regulative principle when men say in response to a certain thing that the word of God requires, you show me in the Bible where it's forbidden me. Show me where it's forbidden to sing a man-made hymn or anything else that the regular principle would speak about. Show me where it's forbidden. That's backwards. That's entirely backwards. The regulative principle does not say do in worship what God has not forbidden. There are churches that teach that principle. It's called the normative principle, not the regulative principle. The Lutheran churches teach that. Most evangelical churches today teach that principle. The worship is wide open to as much as man can imagine, as long as God didn't forbid it. That is a complete misunderstanding and oftentimes a deliberate attack upon the regulative principle. The regulative principle is clear. Worship God the way He commanded in no other way. Do what He said. Which means, if God did not say in the, in the Scriptures... Sing man-made hymns, then you may not do it, as if God had said you may not do it. Worship God in no other way than He has commanded in His Word. That's the worship that God requires. And that regulative principle is not meant to be a slap on the back and an attaboy to the church of Jesus Christ, as if the second commandment comes and says, you're doing really, really well in this matter of worship. In fact, that regulative principle reveals how formal and how uh, traditional we are and how much we'll go through the motions at all costs. And if anyone wants to upset those motions then we'll be after them. How shallow our worship becomes. The regulative principle does not commend us, but condemns our nature. But thanks be to God that the church of Jesus Christ, redeemed by grace, has one who kept the law of God, and who obeyed the second commandment. And this takes us to why image worship is forbidden. And it might be different than one thinks at first. Why is image worship forbidden? Because the law forbids it. All right. But image worship is forbidden because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, first of all. The Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled this law regarding image worship. Jesus Christ worshipped God absolutely perfectly. 
You read in Psalm 27 verse 4 that there was one thing and one thing only that he desired of the Lord and that he would seek after, which he did with his whole heart, that he might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's worship. And that one thing that the Lord desired after He perfectly, fully accomplished. Or you read in Psalm 69, verse 9, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So consumed was the Lord Jesus Christ in His heart for the worship of Jehovah that it's all He thought about. It's all He sought. And when He came to the temple... And found those men turning it into a den of thieves. He drove them out. And they remembered at that time the words of the psalm. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That was Jesus. The zeal of God's house ate up his heart. The Lord Jesus Christ never departed from what the word of God commands regarding worship. The Lord Jesus Christ was the messenger of the temple. The messenger of the covenant who came suddenly to the temple in order to cleanse that temple and worship God perfectly in that temple. The Lord Jesus Christ is the temple of the people of God and builds us upon Himself as the cornerstone. Jesus Christ perfectly, perfectly fulfilled the second commandment. Which means that your keeping of the commandment is not unto your salvation or your blessing or your peace or your standing with God. That's all finished. And everything that Christ has done, He has counted as yours so that it is as if you were eaten up by the zeal of God's house. And as if youth sought one thing only all your days. And now out of that salvation, the church of Jesus Christ makes no images and seeks to worship God only as He has commanded. If it were the other way, you couldn't even come to church. If your keeping the second commandment made you right with God, you'd never be right with God. And all your worship would end. But because the Lord Jesus Christ has kept this commandment perfectly, the church enters into her worship in gratitude for what Christ has given. And this worship of the church is a gift of God, a gift of His grace. This worship works the same way as all of God's other gifts. It's not that you do it and now He's beholden to you because you did a good job in worship. But it's that He saved you and gave you worship as His gift to you so that now you're beholden to Him for the worship that God has given. The church of Jesus Christ loves worship. She can't wait to hear about worship. She can't wait to come to worship. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has perfectly given her all his worship as her righteousness before Jehovah. Perfectly given her all his righteousness as her worship before Jehovah. 
This commandment then does not commend the church, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ comforts the church. And that grace of God stirs the church to gratitude in her worship of Jehovah. Here, in the second commandment, we have the great commandment on worship. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, who was eaten up by the zeal of that worship. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word to us. We pray that thou wilt bless it to our hearts, comfort our hearts. Wilt thou give us faith by which we believe in Jesus Christ and have all his righteousness and give us worship to thy glory and thy honor as the fruit of what thou hast done. Hear our prayer, forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen. Psalter number 326, 326. We continue singing through Psalm 119 at the occasion of the Catechism's treatment of the Ten Commandments. We'll sing the four stanzas, all four of 326.
Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.